Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. My guest is Mr. Tim Masso. Tim and I have known each other for a number of years, and Tim Masso is the name that many people associate with Watchbox. He is a watch specialist over there, but he does so, so much more. Tim, thank you for joining me once again. Hey, it's good to be here. I mean, this is this is at least, I don't know, round a million for us. We've been friends since way back, and it's fun to see where this has gone. It's good to be on a superlative podcast. I hope I can live up to that billing. Well, you know, I think what I love about the term superlative in terms of it being a podcast name outside of the fact that you see it on the dial of, you know, Rolex watches is that it really means striving for the best. And one of the common themes amongst everyone in the watch industry in their own way is they, they're always aiming for the best, uh, to learn about the best, to make the best, to own the best, to design the best. But haven't you seen that that's sort of an ongoing trend in the world of watches? Yeah, you always want to get the best, or at least the best for the money. And I think that qualifier works its way into discussions more than ever these days. But yeah, I mean, if you want uncompromised, this is the Grubel 4C of podcasts. This is the Fernand Bertou of podcasts. We're there. Yeah, and you know, what I hope that in the future, if someone is like, what was going on in the watch industry circa 2020, 2021, they can listen to the superlative episodes and hear from you, and the many other people that I've had on the show to sort of understand the mentality. Here's what the big brand CEOs were thinking. Here's what the collectors were thinking. Here's what the retailers were thinking. Because as someone who's starting to think about history now, we're all thinking about things like legacy. You ask yourself, what will the future really know from what we're doing right now? And what you and I do, especially, has an odd sense of permanence, whereas a lot of the other types of conversations and context in industry disappear, don't they? Yeah, I would say, especially with a blog to watch, it's it's been indexing since I was still working in mortgage-backed securities when it was a blog to read. I remember yeah. you reflected at one point on writing, it might have been 2,000, 2,500 articles, and I was just thinking, my God, what a legacy. And now I've got about 7,000 watch videos out in the world, and I realize I've got a little piece of that. It's a good feeling, but yeah, it's an ongoing project. It's not we, done yet. We, we just hit, a couple months ago, 10,000 articles published on the site. I just hit my five thousandth. I can't say that without lisping. I mean, try to say five thousandth without your, your tongue turning upside down article on a blog to watch, not concerning the ones elsewhere. And now I'm starting to worry that no one in the future will actually take the time to read it all to figure out who RLMs was. And with you, you think about all the hours and hours and hours. If someone was going to be like a Tim Masso historian, that's that's quite a hill to climb, is it going to be, right? Well, I, I hope so. I'd, I'd prefer to think of it that way than to think I'm the... Uh the YouTube equivalent of junk mail for horological intent. That's uh, that's probably the way I'd like to look at it. And the nice thing about the internet is it can work for you, work, work against you. If you have a bad date, there are review sites where that's going to live forever. But if you made all those videos, a little piece of you is going to outlive you in some way. And it's kind of fun. But it's also important to create a database for the community. It's not so much about me. I feel like even if you are the Langa Boutique in Dresden and you were trying to sell a watch competitively against some watch box used watch, you're still going to open up my video and learn your stuff from that video. <laughs> I take a lot of pride in that. We've it's been responsible source. for teaching literally an, 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 a countless number of individuals around the world how to think about watches, what to like, how to talk about them. And I feel that that's so important because without the sort of context that we offer People just like watches, mostly on a superficial basis. We've learned that to become as nerdy as we are in this area requires a very special personality, a lot of time. Uh, without people like us, 
I, I really feel that the majority of consumers would have no idea how to navigate this space. Oh, I definitely feel it, especially with some of what you've written in the past. I met I met Audrey Rafi the other day, so the daughter of Pascal Rafi, and I'm sitting right. there, and she's showing me the watches at Watch Time New York, and I'm thinking, I remember Ariel called this artistic density about yeah. seven years ago when describing Beauvais watches, and that's exactly what it is. Also, frankly, and it's become more relevant with time, you once said, never pay over list price for a watch, and I can't think of a year, this being the worst yet, in which that advice has not held just about anyone in the best of, of standing. Never pay over list for a watch. And that's coming from a guy who sells a lot of used watches over list. Let, so let's talk about that, because that's sort of an interesting place for you to be. Um, you and I fundamentally agree on this, yet there are market forces more powerful than us because they're selling to people who are not strict watch lovers, who are being, we'll just say opportunistic. That's that's what that's what people who are, are are selling things do. They they will do it when they can. And we're in a situation right now where there are market forces which are made it more difficult to collect. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is you and I, in our own way, have tried to give people a guide of how to avoid the BS, uh, spending too much. We're like, if you want to get the most horological satisfaction, listen to us and we'll tell you how to do it in, in the most accessible way. Yeah, without a doubt. I think right now cars are a great example. Prices for collectibles are going nuts. Things that weren't collectible now are. And I was looking at all these high-end cars, you know, like Ferrari 328, Aston Martin Vanquish, you know, work service, six-speed conversion. And but you'd have at, to give away in the past. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm looking at the price of these things where I'm like, oh my God, even with the manumatic transmission, the Vanquish is an $85,000 car now. I'm like, you know what? I'm getting a C5 Corvette. Dedicated sports car platform, hydroform frame rails, transaxle layout, 50-50 weight distribution, tons of power, fix it with a screwdriver, parts from any corner of America, any time of the year, easy. And I spent 21000 on a C5 Corvette, and I'm having as much fun driving it as if I bought one of those six-speed Vanquish conversions or a Magnum PI Ferrari, and I don't regret it. And that's what I'm trying to help people accomplish with watches. You know, okay, do you, do you have to pay $120,000 for a Patek 5980? No. If you're not going to be satisfied with anything else, well, then I guess buy it as opposed to buying something else than buying it in the end. Please, let me at least explain to you what you can get if you buy, like, last year's Parmigiani Tondograph GT. Just, just let me explain it to you, and then you can decide whether you're even interested. But don't push the trigger or push the button, pull the trigger until you know what you could have for a fraction of the money. And I'm talking like 17 grand here. So and here's the, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You and I, you and I have experienced this many times and it's, it's interesting. We'll be in this situation. You've been there many times. I've been there, of course. And the, the look on the person's face who says they want the Patek or whatever is not, I can't wait to wear this and appreciate it. It's I can't wait to show this off. I can't wait for some other individual to feel envy or jealousy or approval or what it is. It's very rarely a personal thing they're doing. It's like there's no way we can persuade them that there's anything else that'll appeal to that person they want to impress. And I feel that that's oftentimes what they're trying to do. They're not trying to enjoy it for the same reasons we are. Yeah, if you'd asked me five years ago, what is the most toxic influence in the watch collector community? I would have probably thought about that for a moment and then said, without a doubt, it's auctions. Because I saw <laughs> auctions as doing very little except to inflate a small number of watches to ridiculous heights. And, you know, sometimes, as with the Hoyer boom of like 2015, the old Hoyers, uh, people who looked at the value of Rolex and Patek and all these high-end vintage watches going up got involved in something they didn't understand, and they all got burned. And as for the people who would have enjoyed those old Rolex and Pateks and APs at reasonable, you know, used watch prices, now they're priced out of the market. And it added a pomp and a circumstance and a grandeur that was unjustified because auction houses profiting off the prominence of big-time sales were dragging up the price of everything. It was like the late 80s with Ferraris. Ferraris rose, and then that pulled up Jaguars and Maseratis, and then Triumphs and Sunbeams. And before you knew it, everyone was paying way too much for everything just because of what was happening on the auction scene with some marquee pieces. And and that was the worst thing in the watch collector community for like five years ago, without and, a doubt. And let me just sort of pat myself on the back here really quick, because when you know Tim Masso says something is toxic, um, it, it holds weight. And 
you know yourself that I have been writing about the negative elements of auction houses for a very long time now. And I feel that for most of that time, I was the only one questioning whether or not they were good for the watch industry. They do nothing of of use for the industry. Now, you could say, oh, well, they provide a public pricing history. And it's true, stuff sold on vendor websites and Chrono24 generally doesn't leave a pricing history. But auctions make pricing distortions permanent by taking exceptional prices and making them the reference point for so many different models and brands, when in fact they should be looked at as extremes not to be repeated. But yeah, you were ahead of that. You were absolutely on top of that. And I guess where I've sort of evolved on this issue is that I now view social media as the worst thing going on because all of the posturing, all of the primping, everything you mentioned about the guy who's waiting to get that Patek, not because he loves it for what it is, but because he wants to show it off, he's showing it off on social media. And he's fitting into a cut cookie that is essentially laid out for him by someone else. It's not like someone saying, you know what, I'm going to get a Patek Philippe Neptune and blow the world's mind with how cool it looks on my Instagram. Now, that would be thinking outside the box. He's like, oh my God, the 5711 green dial, I've got to pay 300000 for it and then make sure people know I did. And that's the worst thing going on in the watch space today. Yeah, and I and look, I mean, we could dissect those things in a ton of ways. We could have a six-hour conversation about that. I'm, I desperately don't want to like spend the entire conversation on that because it's such a deep topic, and maybe we'll have to revisit that. I think what's important to say when we say toxic, when we use all these terms, what is the problem we're talking about? I'm gonna suggest that it's what I call um, opportunistic pricing. Pricing, when it comes to something like a watch, especially a used product or one that doesn't have an MSRP associated with it, is a very fluid topic. And what you tend to have is someone who has the good wants to sell it for as much money as possible. So when it goes to the internet and you put a price on something, you can put whatever price you want. You want to sell a $50,000 MSRP item for $300,000, no one's going to stop you. And when the consumer sees that published price, for whatever reason, seeing that, you know, printed somewhere or, you know, or digitally, it leaves some type of sense of authority. And so we have a situation where merchants are taking advantage of some weaknesses in the human condition. And they're creating a situation where things are ambitiously priced as opposed to market priced. It's can we get away with charging this amount versus this is what the market says the commodity is valued at. And most consumers take these sort of printed, you know, prices and statistics and things like that very, very seriously when I hope most people recognize a lot of these things are highly arbitrary and need to be dissected. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly that. I'll be honest, as a vendor, we sell a lot of these watches that are exceptionally expensive. We've sold the $30,000 Rolex Submariner and the $40,000 Rolex Daytona and the $100,000 Patek Philippe Nautilus. I think as a person who works for a vendor who sells this stuff, I try to keep my descriptions of these watches sober and grounded in reality. Let me tell you what you're getting, and then you decide whether it's worth $120,000 to you. At the end of the day, I do believe that social media and auction results drive pricing in the industry, which is why, for example, you can get that $21,500 Parmigiani Tondograph GT for like seventeen dollars today because it has no footprint in the auction or social media world. Um, And I really do think that, honestly, at the end of the day, those are the driving forces. The vendors will be opportunistic, but also completely honest. A vendor can't ask 50% above the highest auction price. So it's always difficult to say, is it the chicken or the egg with the auction houses, the vendors, and frankly, the third factor, which is clients themselves and what they're willing to pay. But I do think social media is the biggest driver today. I think that as much as we hate to admit it as watch collectors, the designer factor is the single biggest driver of price and demand. And if I told you tomorrow that as the most visible member of Watchbox, I am going to go and make old Romagerome watches, the hottest thing on the internet. I couldn't pull that off. I couldn't do it for a million reasons, starting with the product, but including the lack of any kind of community interest or social media currency. Algorithms on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube would have no interest in it. You can't create something from nothing. And I do feel that at the end of the day, as a vendor, you have to kind of surf the wave, but you don't create the tide. Well, that's, again, a lot to unpack. And I actually, I mean, look, I mostly agree with you, but at the end of the day, 
the tide has to come from somewhere. There's no moon which creates it naturally. And there, th there are people like you and me that do create all of the tides. Every popularity trend begins with one consumer or one media person somewhere saying, hey, has anyone checked this thing out? You might want to take a closer look. It's pretty good. As interest sort of coalesces and it um, you know, turns into this sort of snowball effect where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, then it sort of takes a life onto its own. But all of these watches had to begin with someone willing to take a risky opinion and share it, which is, I think these are very, very cool. Don't you agree? I think when someone's getting a good value in an underappreciated watch, like if, you know, if you want to spend $50,000, you know, don't look at some sort of $12,000 steel Rolex and figure out how to get that way. I mean, fine, if you've got to have that and you know you're going to wind up buying it anyway, then get it. But you can get a JLC dual met for that kind of price. You know, you can get into, I mean, you can get into tourbillon watches from IWC, minute repeating watches from IWC. For $70,000, you can get an IWC Grand Complication 3770. That's an honest to God Grand Complication watch in platinum for, well, about, well, less than half of what people are paying for the Dash 14 version of the Nautilus. And I'll argue to them blue in the face that you should buy that because it's a more interesting watch and a more worthwhile purchase. Uh, but again, when I post a video of something like that on YouTube, it barely makes a ripple. When I post a 31 millimeter ladies Oyster Perpetual with the turquoise dial, it gets 50,000 views in 48 hours. So I I want to I want to mention something about that. I think that's so crucial and it's something that we need to talk about. When I first started this, that was not the case, okay? Watches were um a much less developed area uh, uh on any single social media algorithm or Google and it was very very easy to get a lot of traffic for a lot of watch stuff because there was a lot less of it. Then you know, Instagram happened and watches became such a big thing in pop culture. And the the social media networks, and I'm including YouTube, are not incentivized to help you discover cool new content. That's the role of a magazine or, or some type of other human curator such as yourself. And it's what we do as, as well. Social media platforms live and die by engagement, right? And so what ends up happening is what they call the network effect or the sort of self-siloing notion where popular things only get more popular because the algorithms only promote things that get positive engagement. They're, they're the least open-minded things on the planet, right? They're going to share something with you. If you don't immediately like it, you'll never see it again, <laughs> right? So all it's really doing is saying, let me show you stuff you already know and like, and then I'm going to keep showing you more of the same because I just want you to like it. There's no uh, built-in incentive to be like, well, what about this watch? Instagram gets nothing extra out of it, even if the watch consumer does get something extra out of it. So this is why I don't like social media, because people believe it's a discovery platform, when in fact it is anything but a discovery platform nine out of 10 times when it comes to how it actually operates in watch lovers' life. And we've talked about this before. What if I said, spend three years becoming a watch collector before you ever go on Instagram or something like that? What have I said? Yeah, definitely sit, sit on the notion. As they say, listen comprehend, respond in that order. Um, and that goes for watch collecting too. You know, here's the thing. Obviously, I've done very well with mainstream brands in the past. Rolex, Patek Philippe, FP Journe, even Richard Mille. And, you know, I'm satisfied when we sell those watches. We sell them at market price. Market price for them happens to be high. Let me at least give you all the options because, again, I want, if you're going to buy, you're going to pay $120,000 for an FP Journe Chronomet Blue. More power to you. You know, that's great. That that keeps the roof over all our heads. But when I post that thing on Instagram, I'm gonna post it alongside a Vacheron Soltarello retrograde jump hour and like a Resence Type 3. And I hope in the process, you learn a little bit about something that was outside your comfort zone, an area of interest, and that I've made a little bit of a dent in your sensibility as a collector, even if in the end, you wind up buying the predictable thing for a lot of money. So it's almost like, that expression, one hand for the ship and one hand for the self when, you know, you're in the Navy. Well, if, if I can imagine I have three hands here, or maybe we'll use one of my legs. Uh, I've got one hand, which is offering you the the predictable blue dial tantalum case FP Journe that everyone wants. And then two weird things that you might not have known you wanted, but I'm putting it out there because this is my opportunity while I have your attention. That reminds me of 
some of your early years, I believe that when you were doing military stuff, you were in a, a, a PR capacity or a spokesperson capacity. It sounds like at that time, you learned how to share an opinion that wasn't yours in a way that sounded like you stood behind it. Yeah, well, you don't agree with everything the military does when you're in the military. Uh, for me, it was a matter of making stuff exciting if I wasn't riveted by it. So, for example, there were aspects of naval aviation training that were not very interesting to me, but mindful of the fact that I need to make the entire mission emotionally resonant to the public, uh, I would find ways to express that, again, without lying, but focus on the best aspects. And if I'm going to be reviewing something like an Hublot Big Bang, which has no, you know, really means nothing to me. I don't have any disdain for it, but that's a watch that's designed to be you know, charitably speaking, big, bold, and visible. And those aren't my priorities in a watch. But I'm going to try to say, look, if you want a watch that's hugely visible, that is instantly recognizable, that is not fine horology or beautifully handmade, but is reasonably durable, versatile, and likely to give you a lot of satisfaction poolside, look, maybe consider the Hublot Big Bang. And just like I would be like, okay, so, you know, here is SEER training, you know, in the military. You're going to learn how to survive a crash, survive, evade, or escape capture. And, you know, I'd make that really exciting to the public when I was giving them the base tour or the tour of the facility where that stuff was taught. Uh, and it's just a matter of being able to maintain a level of focus on what you think someone else will find the most appealing aspect of the mission or the watch. Cut to the chase. An Hublot is not high horology for the most part. They're the MP pieces, but we're not talking about those. It's a watch that's just hugely visible, loud, and in a way that, say, a Capristo exhaust on a Lamborghini is loud, ear-bleedingly loud. That's the Hublot. And if that's your priority, this is a good match. So again, I'm just trying to make matches. And back in my military days, I had to sell the whole mission, not just the parts that I personally found engrossing. So both of us have sort of what I'll call diplomacy in our training. It came from different places. But I think it's important to, to say that because it doesn't represent most of the people in our space when it comes to, we'll just say, those who are spokespeople for watch collecting. And what I mean by that is these are not people who are trying to keep their own opinions out of it. If anything, their own ego is crucial and the, the central crux of, of what they do. It's all about do what I say, believe what I believe. My opinions are, are definitely important. I don't care what your tastes are. My tastes are, are paramount. Um, and, and I would say that that's probably one of the most toxic things. You can't remove ego from the luxury space. Without a doubt, you can't remove it. But I think when it comes to the media people, they're not supposed to be where the biggest egos are. Yeah, I would say it's a little bit weird, the, the persona of the celebrity watch journalist or celebrity, I, I guess, watch influencer slash journalist. And again, that's the toxicity of social media. Because you don't get paid in any other way. Celebrity is the only currency because, as you know, the industry doesn't make it profitable enough. Most of us who have made it have had to find some type of odd niche, which both of us have. But for the most part, when you look from the outside, it looks like there's a bunch of money thrown around. Then you get on the inside, and literally the only currency is fame. So what else are they going to work hard for? Yeah, I don't ever want to be the figure you picture when you picture Watchbox. I'd like you to think of the watch that you want best because I'm a set of hands. And my introduction for years since the beginning has been, hi, I'm Tim, welcome to Watch You Want. And then later, hi, I'm Tim, welcome to Watchbox. I didn't want to be in front of a camera and I didn't want to be a spokesman and I didn't want to be an identifiable face. Um, you know, it, it happened. I'm okay with it. But the core of what I do is always supposed to be education. Let me just give you all the advice you need to make the right choice and not be disappointed. But there seems to be a lot of people who want to be recognized as tastemakers. And I hate I hated that term until I heard the term influencers. And then I decided that's the term I hate most. To me, this is like a bunch of people who think their opinion matters more, leading a bunch of people who are like sailboats without a keel or a rudder or direction of any kind. And it's a bad combination that leads to bad matches of people to watches. Well, you, you know my the way that I refer to influencers. I use the term opinion mercenary that I've said on the show a few times. I'll repeat again because that's what they are. I have an opinion. It looks like it's what I really feel, but it's for sale. So they are opinion mercenaries. You and I need to be bought over. Uh, we're not 
we're not, um, I guess, you know, we're not a whore in that context where our affection must be earned as opposed to something which is just up for sale to the highest bidder or any bidder. Yeah, I try to stay away from any kind of celebrity. I, I'm not a fan of it. I'm, I try to just stay down to earth and let people know what I believe personally and then let them make their choice without pushing them in the wrong direction. I don't want someone with a tiny wrist to buy a huge watch and wind up unhappy. I don't want someone who really wants a simple watch to wind up with a monstrously expensive thing he can't afford threatens his finances. You know, I want at the end of the day to have to be able to give you advice with integrity so you can make the choice based on your own preferences and hopefully get in touch with them. You know, that's we're, we're ambassadors for the hobby. That's really what I've always called it. If, if anything, we're ev evangelists. We want to go out there and be like, have you heard of the good word of watches? It'll bring you so much joy. We don't care what watch you ultimately end up wearing or what you collect or what you spend. We just want to have more people in the room that care about this like we do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not about money. I, I think some of the most fun I've had with some watches has been with like swatches people have given me just as get, as gifts. And I associate great memories and great folks with those watches. And that's an experience anyone can have regardless of budget. It's the fraternity, the hobby. It's the joy of discovery. I think sometimes finding out about watches I know I can't afford, just watching the horizon expand before my eyes and learn about how good, you know, back in like 2014, learn about how incredible Longwundheina watches are. And I'm like, I never even knew this company existed. Look at the quality of what they're making. Yesterday, I didn't know this, this was a thing. And every time I discover something new in the hobby, I fall in love with it again. And I think the toughest thing is to bring someone into the hobby and let them know that constant purchases are not necessary to enjoy the fraternity of collectors, the online base of knowledge available to them, and the joy of discovery. And that you can you can enjoy the watch hobby without a lot of money that way. Thank you for that. That's that's um, you know coincides with so much of what I've said, and I'm glad to hear more you know more opinions on the matter because there are different ways to enjoy watches, and there's a right way and a wrong way. And I I truly feel that all the most important people who've been in watches throughout history have been in, into it for the intellectual reasons as opposed to the show-off reasons or the insecurity reasons. And so that's that's the position we ad advocate for. Because you know what? Ultimately, investing in watches is not a good way to make money. It's actually a very bad way to make money. So that's why we say don't do it. It's not like we're just protective of watches not going high. It's that this is just a bad way to use this product. You know, We're basically trying to say this is the best way to take this weird thing, which is the fact that mechanical watches are still a big deal and enjoy it for yourself. Um, and, and I think a lot of people are trying to advocate self-serving arguments like buy the brand who is paying me to say I like it or buy a watch from me that you know, you're just ultimately not going to enjoy. We, we have to distinguish that. And the problem, I think, is that we're in the era of misinformation. This industry is so caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. It just, it's so much is like, you have to know what you're doing or you can get screwed. Yeah. A couple of years back and it was revealing that it was the day we went to little Tokyo for dinner back at watch time LA in 2019. Right, right. I was speaking to the CEO of Moritz Grossman and I was telling her how much I love their product. And, you know, if they were ever on the East coast and they had some watches on hand, I'd be happy to shoot some YouTube videos of them just to get the word out. And the first question out of her mouth was, and how much would this cost? I'm like, wouldn't cost anything. I like your watches. I, I think they're cool. <laughs> That's, that was my only response. I think they're cool. Yeah. So we did yeah. those videos. Yeah. She was surprised. Let's talk a little bit about where you came from in your background. I love to explain how people get to these positions because I think that you and I both fell into watches quite randomly. I guess if people looked at our life trajectories, be like, okay, I didn't, ex I didn't see that one coming. Right. And I think it's also important to recognize that there isn't like an educational path here. So talk a little bit about your background. You know, we met when you were at Watch You Want. That was an exciting time. Um, and now you're kind of a big deal um, at, at Watchbox, uh, living in Philadelphia. So, so you know, tell the, the Tim Masso origin story. Well, the Tim Masso origin story is that I left college thinking that I was going to be a lawyer. And so for three years out of college, starting in 2006, I worked as a paralegal in a company called Cadwallader that specialized in mortgage-backed securities, residential and commercial. And that was right around the time that exact thing blew up the world. 
So I was kind of recoiling in horror from what I'd been doing for those three years. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to do something that's a little bit less driven by, I, I guess, money and power and the pursuit of those. So I joined the Navy and I spent four years in public affairs. And, you know, people would always ask me in the Navy, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> because uh, in my background educationally and, you know, historically, it wasn't like, why, all the why other would they say that? No, seriously, like, why would they say that? Because I didn't have like a degree from a state school. I hadn't come up from the enlisted ranks. Uh, you know, I came from an area of the country that didn't send a lot of people to the military on Long Island. There were a lot of folks from the South and the Midwest, uh, you know, just a million different things. My background, the way I spoke, the way I acted, it, it didn't fit. I, I clearly wasn't cut from the same cloth in a way that was obvious and a match, like an obviously a match for the military. But I loved yeah. my time in the military because I worked in public affairs and as a conduit, a communications conduit between naval aviation and the general public, I, I found something that I loved doing. I ran the base newspaper. I wrote for aviation publications on topics in naval aviation. I, I led tours for television and movie producers who wanted to create shows and movies about naval aviation. I, I would give them the rundown on what we were doing, take them through the training, cover milestones and training, aircraft coming on is board. It, is this what took you to Florida? <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's funny because that took me to the panhandle of Florida. When I was done with the military in 2013, I moved back to New York where I was originally from and I was sitting at a Toyota in Manhasset getting my car serviced. And I saw an ad on a vendor blog looking for a blogger. And at that time, I was doing a lot of website copy. I like, I'd just gotten out of the Navy and I thought, okay, watches are a hobby. It's something I love. I'm real close to one of the big watch markets in the country in New York City. Let me take six months and see if I can make money in this space. And if that doesn't work, I'll... So what, what year was this? That was 2013. I'm like, I'll get a sensible... I'll get a sensible job if this doesn't work out. I've got good credentials and whatnot. And I respond to an ad on a vendor blog looking for a blogger. And that vendor was Watch You Want out of Hollywood, Florida. And so I sent them an email. I copyright for 47th Street Vendors, which is, I don't want to call it, it's not slumming, but 47th Street Watch Trade doesn't have a great reputation for a reason. And I was just, they, they need good writers. In other words. Yeah. They, they need an advocate, <laughs> someone who can write a very persuasive copy for a watch that's been polished way too many times. And so that's sort of where I was. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. Uh, do you want me to come and, and work for you? And so they said, well, submit an article. So I wrote an article. They gave me two weeks to write it. I sent it back to them the same day. And apparently that impressed them enough that I came down for an interview and I met O.J. Watley, who was the founder, and Shannon Beck, who was the president. And it took us about, I guess, 48 hours to figure out that this was a good match. And then I moved down to South Florida, which is very different from the panhandle, oh, yeah. from New York. And I spent those three years in Hollywood, just north of Miami and just south of Fort Lauderdale, working for Watch You Want. And initially, the idea was that I would write their blog and I would be a ghostwriter for O.J. if he wanted to publish or something like something along those lines. And I, I told them, well look, you haven't had this stuff up for 10 years. You look at the reference publications online in the watch space, and you're never going to match them. You're never going to be on the first or even second page of Google. Nobody cares what's on a vendor blog. It's self-serving, obscure, and irrelevant. So let me try something that not a lot of people are doing well right now. Let me create a YouTube channel that's just reviews. Not my face, not personalities, not my full name. Let me just try to post the stuff to a YouTube channel as fast as you add it to inventory and make that our, you know, let's live and die by that because it's a newer space and there aren't as many established players. And I think it might wind up more relevant, especially for mobile applications. And to their credit, they gave me the flexibility to do that. I shot my first 800 videos with an iPhone 5. I still have it as a keepsake. That's and that's funny. Sort of, that was the start of things. And of course, from there, people started recognizing me, the voice at least, when I went to watch events. And around 2016, Danny Govberg, who was you know, the head of Govberg Jewelers up here in Philadelphia, he decided to invest in the company and become the majority stakeholder. And he said, I want you in front of the camera. 
And that was maybe a bridge too far for me at the time because I'm a background guy. I don't like being in the foreground. I'll do it if I have to, but it's not in my nature. But I did it because he wanted it. And, you know, he was Danny Govberg. We were like this nothing vendor from Florida, and he was a big deal in the industry. And, you know, he still is. He's on the GPHG jury this year. But I built a studio from remanufactured stuff that I got online, and I started streaming to YouTube. And eventually, there was the investment from, of course, from Singapore that, that created Watchbox out of the remnants of Govberg and Watch You Want. And the new company was Watchbox, which would focus on used watches. And all of a sudden, there was a lot more money for studios and production and an editing team. And I got an iPhone 11 and all sorts of stuff changes. And uh, I know that sounds like, like a watershed moment. You got an iPhone 11, all this changes, and you got an iPhone 11, you mentioned that? Yeah, because I shot another 2,000 videos on that camera. <laughs> Fortunes were made off of that camera. And well, you are sentimental with items. So you're proud of owning things for longer than most other people would. Yeah, I will wear out my phones, my shoes, my glasses, and, and, you know, I've had the one watch since 2018. And people say, I can't imagine how you do what you do with just one watch. And I'm like, I get to enjoy the watch community and hobby without buying them all. So, you know, I, you and I have very different uh, kind of approaches in that regard. But, yeah, I, I, tend, I tend to wear stuff till it falls apart. And well, Tim, I'm building up inventory for a museum at some point. That's my ultimate goal. Someday, Christie's will auction off the Ariel Adams collection. <laughs> And I can only guess what watch will be on the cover, but it'll be a landmark event. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch Store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. No, that's the thing. Like I said, museum. I'm, I'm not kidding. I've been thinking about this. Where do you ultimately go with all this? And it's to create a museum. Isn't the best thing for us as, as, peop, as, as sort of an aspiration where we go with this to basically be running an American museum on watches, not about American watches, but like watches are the type of thing that needs a lot more coverage from a, um, an academic perspective. Just the last 20 years alone needs a whole department somewhere. It Absolutely. starts with museums. Are we not the natural people to sort of run museums? Of course, they could have events and brands could help support them, but these need to be nonprofits or for-profits that, you know, the, there's there could be one in LA, New York. It's just, you know, do you, it's like they have all these fashion museums. They have car museums. Why not? A, why not watch museums? There's enough watches out there. They're great. They help keep everything alive. Everybody would support them. Um, I think that that's a a great ultimate aim. And we are the natural people to be the curators and managers of such establishments. Yes, yeah, I think that's true. I think it's important that a museum always have a perspective. Otherwise, it's just history and. History is stories, but the perspective is the framework that makes it intelligible and gives you a way to understand it. And it's true that from an American standpoint, most of the watches come from overseas, but the contours of American watch culture are very different than watch culture in Singapore or Europe or Hong Kong. And talking about it from that perspective and documenting it is necessary. Look, I mean, look at the Barnes collection, a very important thing. In Philadelphia, we don't have to talk about all the history of it, but this was one human being's collection of art that that he liked, that he acquired, and it was good enough that you could base an entire museum around it. Yes, I don't think I'll be the one to create the physical museum. I think whatever legacy I leave will be online, to be perfectly honest. I think I will have created a searchable gallery of as many watches as possible, and then my critical perspective that I bring is just the attempt to be objective and describe the watch as a watch, not as a totem of status or some sort of flag of opportunistic self-promotion, 
I think if you can talk about the Tech Nautilus and actually talk about what it is, what it does well, what it doesn't do, and then leave that for people to use down the road, I think that's a legacy in its own right. And I think you'll probably focus a little bit more on the currents of the times, and you've got more experience in the watch industry than I have. So, you know, you'll talk about what's changed from the 2000s through the current day from an American perspective. And, you know, hopefully together we can leave that legacy for the future to understand watches in the 2000s and the 2010s and the 2020s. And it'll be from very different perspectives. And you'll be a little bit more physical and the written word, and I'll probably be video and the spoken word. So here's here's where I think your role should be. You should be like what I call the database king. Um, there's going to be a lot of media, your videos, my videos, photography articles, all kinds of stuff like that. It requires a formal strategy about how to index it, how to search it, how to promote it and things like that. You know, you have more of the mindset for something like that, whereas you first have to organize all your own media, but then you realized for a real snapshot of the era, it has to include a bunch of other stuff as well. So you'll start to acquire for, again, academic purposes, you license it for that reason, basically as much of the data from this time period. Because I do believe that we live in a period that's going to end. The luxury watch industry is going to continue, but I think the independent, as we know it, this sort of small manufacturers, I think in the next 20 years, it's going to go back to being mostly big brands. And the little gut is not going to be able to work out because, again, remember, the industrial base you have right now is still left over from the pre-quartz crisis. And when those d people die out and the, the, you know, the, the global volumes of fashion watches are going to stabilize at very little, there's only going to be enough manufacturing capacity for a real luxury market. I, I get it. I'm just saying like my, my 20-year predictions. Okay. I'm going to maybe cut a little bit against that because I think you're going to see a lot of fractional stakes. You know, FP Journe is 20% owned by Chanel. So is Romain Gautier. Richemont has a small stake in Grubel Forcey. I think that's that's sort of the future of a lot of the independents that'll survive. They'll but then have, they're no longer independent, is the point. Yeah, well, they're, they're quasi-independent. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone would compare F.P. Journe to, say, Roger Dubuis in, in terms of how they're run or structured. Now, but again, we don't know what that's going to be. Uh, the, the point is that there's fringes of extra capacity, and that extra capacity can go to art and small production and creativity and all kinds of cool stuff, and that, that exists for a moment of time because a lot of it is still left. I'm just saying that that extra capacity is going to be um, efficiencyed out to the point where this era for about 30, 40 year period, they'll be like, all this crazy stuff was made and it just, it, it wasn't there before and it sort of wasn't there after. It'll be sort of a, its own contained thing, like an art, like the Impressionist era or something like that. Yeah, it, it's certainly possible. I mean, I would say that if you want to talk about these weird discontinuous legacies, you're also going to see a lot of it from big brands from roughly 2008 to 2000. 18, Cartier was really taken with this idea that they would be an ultra haute de gamme brand. And there was this endless annual avalanche of these super high mech Cartier complications from Carol Forestier and her team. And then right around 2015, they came to some sort of epiphany and they realized this is wrong for the brand. We sell like the five to $15,000 <laughs> watch and they just recoiled from it. And so people in the future looking at these insane multi-complications are going to be like, hey, remember when Cartier made like a flying tourbillon minute repeater? Okay, let me say something here. And again, that was a weird decision for them when you look on the outside, but they were predicating that on this actual thing they saw where from about 2000, 2005, like you couldn't make watches expensive enough. There Two, was three, four tourbillon. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. There was the BRIC countries um, in the Middle East and stuff like that were in China was just buying up all this crazy stuff. A lot of it was sort of grafting purposes and bribery and illegitimate money. But at the end of the day, there was like this endless market. Like you like you said, you couldn't put enough tourbillons in it. And so for them, they're like, Cartier is super popular. Crazy high-end watches are selling. That makes so much sense for us to do. And so it did actually make sense if that wave was going to continue. But of course, these waves never do. Well, we always see a culling of trends eventually. Two-tone ran its course. Monster. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Two-tone is here forever. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's uniquely dear to your heart. It'll always survive, at least in, in 
in some let's call it a well-loved niche but yeah so two-tone ran its course small cases ran their course the monster complications and attendant monster sizes and monster prices of the 2000s in particular uh that eventually ran its course i think now you know more to what you said we're in an era when independents are flourishing and i believe that there will always be some independents that are important that drive the trends in the market that are relevant, relatively freestanding, or at least independent enough in the way they're managed that they don't seem like tenant brands of big groups. But I also sat at the Carré des Ologères at the last real SIHH in 2019, and I sat there with some industry guys. We looked around, and this is where all the independent brands were, and we said, you know what? I'll be amazed if half of these are still around in three years. And, and frankly, I sort of stand by that. Even with, with COVID, I feel like there are a lot of independents that are in a lot of trouble financially, and that hasn't bubbled to the surface yet. But it might be just kind of like the big bands and the ocean liners, the 1930s. The high point comes just before the fall, and we're kind of at peak independent right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it could be, and I think we've passed, I've actually think we've passed the peak. And like you said, those companies that used to be independent have had to latch on in some way or another to a bigger group. You know, you're talking about um, you know, F.P. Jorn and, and, and many of these others who've had to connect to these stronger backers because they feel some type of market force that you and I, ha- because we've never been in their shoes, we haven't felt it yet. But I think that they see something coming. And, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying we have to not go into doomsday mode when we see it. Um, for example, in, in the very inexpensive uh, segment that I know a little bit more about, I know it, it's not as much of it runs across your radar. And, and honestly, you're, it's fine for that. But you know, these little brands under $1,000 or around $1,000, a lot of Asian brands, they are riding on this available uh, set of factories in, in China, essentially, that specialize in watches that have stubbornly held on. But at some point, they're just going to teeter out you know, uh, owners are going to die and their kids are going to decide to turn the factory into something else, which makes more sense. So it's we're still living in the snapshot of time where you could get an amazing watch for a thousand bucks. And in 30 years from now, you couldn't get anything like that for for thirty thousand dollars because you'd have to from scratch begin with everything, movement, dials, cases. You'd have to have all this machinery collected and expertise where that still exists right now on a relatively on demand basis. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, certainly if you include those under the banner of independence, that, then it's a much, much larger field. And yes, there's going to be a huge culling in that case. Um, you know, And that's where I come in as the database guy, like you said. Someday when people are getting bored with seeing the same stuff over and over again on social media, I'll say, do you remember when there was a Cartier Ballon Bleu tourbillon and it was Geneva Hallmark and it was actually made at Roger Dubuis for Cartier? And, you know, I'll bring that back. I guess I'll bring that back to life because either I'll still be around to recall the good old days or there'll be some video I made with the Cartier Ballon Bleu tourbillon and someone will be shocked to realize that such a thing ever existed. So what I'm trying to say is the reason the museum route is important is that most of the opportunities to nerd out these days and and collect together to enjoy those experiences are the unveiling of some new product because that happens enough. In the future, there might not be industry events to drive the hobby. So without industry events to drive the hobby because there isn't much of an industry left, I think it's going to be the collector community, an academic community, something like that, which is going to have to drive the events. I suspect for new watches or relatively new watches, things made in the last five to 10 years, you'll always have an industry that's built around promoting that sort of thing. I I do feel that once you're past an era and not that living memory is past, but that it's no longer of the moment, you know, and I would describe something like 90s watch collecting very much along those lines. You'll always need some sort of a frame of reference, both the information and a perspective to understand it. In, in order to come to grips with what was important in that time and why people believed what they believed, why they collected what they collected. And, and for me, I consider myself to be a student of the modern watch era. There are people who will just burn their retinas out trying to find variations in Rolex bezels from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and that doesn't interest me. What interests me is that I can tell you about the three different dials on the white gold Rolex Yacht Master II since 2007, and no one else has that on their radar. So I do my best to pack as much knowledge of the modern era as possible into my head because I realize that the John Goldbergers and you know Pookie Papaleos of the world are not going to be writing books about that. 
And that's that's now sort of my responsibility. And then yeah, I yeah, and, and there needs to be a publishing industry that recognizes that individuals such as you and me shouldn't have to do all this entrepreneurially after our days of covering the industry. We've we've matured out of that. There there needs to be a side of the publishing world that recognizes that creating content around cataloging and and, and being academic about this, there's a market for that. But that's that's a future thing. Changing topics. Um, Something interesting happened recently that I thought was a very good lesson on some of the challenges of distribution in the watch industry today. And correct me if I'm wrong about any of these assumptions, but um, uh, you know, your boss, uh, Danny Godberg in, in Watchbox, publicly talked about um, an ownership stake in Debentune, um, a Swiss watchmaking company that we people would have referred to as being one of the independents. Uh, this is not new. The, the money had been there, but there was a very public statement about this. And for me, the context here is very interesting and, and, and difficult to sort of wrap your mind around for a lot of people. The watch industry in the United States has Americans that invest in the marketing and promotion of a brand, i.e., you know, market creation here in America, and they'll make a product popular, they'll get more units in, they'll increase the profitability. And then what happens more often than not is the Swiss company that they're promoting or the your the you know non-American company they're promoting. In, in America says, we're going to end our distribution relationship with you or, or change it so much that you're no longer able to fundamentally profit from this market that you've just invested in creating. We're going to take it away from you now. So there's been this weird side effect of it where uh, American distributors and stores are saying, we don't want to promote your brand because we're afraid you're just going to take it away from us. One option we have around that is we own part of your brand, therefore you can't make that decision without our approval, um, which has worked in, in a limited circumstance and, and seems to be a favored model now. So how much am I getting right or wrong from your you know, different perspective? And, and how big of a deal do you think it is that in America, retailers are afraid to build up brands because the brands will just try to sell the around them if they hit any measure of success? Well, I think the main difference between what happened there with Debitoon and some of the other scenarios you mentioned where brands are taking control of their own distribution, usually wrenching it away from like mom and pop or, you know, small scale distributors. Uh, what happened with Watchbox was that Watchbox had never sold new Debitoon watches. So we never had access to new watches via a distributor or a distribution agreement. It just right. wasn't on the table. Right. So we would always just, you know, we could just say, ha we're selling your watches and we got them used and you can't do anything about it. Whereas with like a shop in America that's working through a distributor to sell new Debitoon watches, they have a very different relationship because they were officially in a way affiliated with the factory as an AD. We were never but you, you saw long-term appeal. You said this is a watch that we feel we can stand behind because people are going to want to buy it and versions of it for years to come. Well, what we said was that we liked them as used watches, and we'd like them a whole lot more if we had access to the latest catalog. So I would say realistically, this isn't a lot like what you'll see with FP Journe, where for the most part, they're just going to be taking away dealership agreements with vendors and you know going kind of vertical and selling through their own doors. Um, this, this is just an equity stake in a company that has a lot of potential. And I think, you know, there were definitely times back in 2017 when Debitoon, you know, from a business standpoint, was at a low web. This isn't something I'm breaking. It was written about at the time. It was a management shakeup and an investment by a U.S. dealer and an equity stakeholder from private equity. Um, that was probably not a time when Watchbox would have wanted to get into Debitoon, but we were still happy selling them used because they were cool watches. A healthier version of that company a few years later is a much more appealing prospect, and it's almost like opening up a second front. Okay, by some means, the bigger group that I work for, maybe not Watchbox, but Govberg, will have a chance to sell these new. And you do secure a supply, obviously, by being a stakeholder in the brand, but not necessarily because the brand itself was looking to pull access for ADs. We never had that access in the first place. So I think it's just a matter of getting into something that's got a lot of potential at a time when independents are very hot. Well, but again, the bigger problem is the fact that without these types of more personal or, or ownership style relationships, someone in the U.S. knows that all of the, the, the fruits of their hard work can be taken away from them. Why is it that the Swiss are so ready to do that, knowing that it burns a lot of bridges? Um, you know, 
are they so motivated about money? Is there an inherent conflict of interest? Why, why can't the Swiss and Americans work hand in hand and share and share? Why does that seem to be so elusive? Well, it's money. Look at brands that have taken full control of their own distribution in the last few years. And let me just be clear, this is not something that's unique to independence. You've seen Swatch close a lot of doors and a lot of vendors. You've seen AP, which makes its 50 to 60,000 watches a year, close a lot of vendors. You've seen Breitling, which when it was bought by Equity in 2017, was one of very few large brands globally that did not control its distribution in major markets. And all of these companies are looking to take control of distribution first by owning the distributor in the nation, like Breitling in the U.S. now distributes its own watches as opposed to working through a middleman who will then sell those watches to dealers. Uh, whereas with AP, you're not seeing them take control of their own distribution so much as you're seeing them literally pull away dealerships and just insist on selling everything through their own stores. So we're seeing a couple of different levels of the Swiss pulling away access. Sometimes it's taking a regional distributor's right to distribute you know, within his country or his geographic region. And sometimes it's literally pulling the retail opportunity away from a specific authorized dealer. And I think the only reason you do that is because you think that you can make more money, either because with something like Breitling, you know, you're going to sell those if circa 2017, when the Schneider family was getting out of the company, they would sell the watch at some discounted price to a distributor who would then add a little bit of a markup and sell that watch to an authorized dealer. And then that authorized dealer would be the one to realize the list price, the retail price. So George Kern at Breitling, he said, well, you know, look, why should we give up any margin to the middleman? Why don't we just sell that watch directly to the authorized dealer and, you know, let them re let them sell it at retail? But why should we sell something that we know for a fact is going to be marked up before it gets to the dealer? Whereas with Audemars Piguet, they're saying, OK, why would we sell to the dealer at like a wholesale keystone price? Like, let's say that's 65 percent when we can sell this thing out of our own shop for 100 percent of price. And, and it's just, there's literally no other reason. Now, every once in a while, a dealer does something that's just batshit crazy for, I'm sorry, I apologize for the swearing, <laughs> but like trying to sell, I don't know, a Patek Philippe out the back door and you see that watch in Costco, that should never happen. If you get caught doing that, you should lose your distributorship. If you're trans shipping Rolexes or selling them on the internet, you should lose your distributorship. But if you're honoring the brand and keeping the faith, and getting the watch at a wholesale price, selling it at a retail price, and maintaining the terms of whatever your agreement says, um, the only reason the brand would pull that watch away from you is so they could sell it themselves for more money. Or in the case of distribution, they could sell it to the retailer for more money. So here's my here's my thoughts. And again, thank you for articulating what they're thinking. And I, I don't disagree. That is what they're thinking. But I think it's short-sighted for a few reasons. One reason is that there's something they don't always appreciate is lost when they try to cut out the, the distributor or, or one of the sort of sellers. These watches do not, in fact, sell themselves. And when they appear to sell themselves, it's only after a lot of momentum has been built up, built up through a lot of effort most of the time. And that without the maintenance of that momentum, uh, after a couple of good years, the, the natural demand dies and you have to start all over again. And then they wish they had a distributor again. So that's one thing I think is an, a, a very real phenomenon that occurs. It's difficult to, to measure. And second, when you do business in a market in America, you have to pay a tax here. And I don't just mean the like literal sales taxes and things like that. I'm saying there's, there's individuals, employees, men and women all over the country that, that dedicate their lives to being in this business. Those margins go to their salaries. That's what keeps a, an infrastructure alive in America. All those margins went to budget to media. All those things that the Swiss were so excited about recapturing has destroyed money that made so much of the American watch market here. Now it is, is, is skin and bones compared to what it used to be because all the money had to stay in Switzerland or go back to Switzerland. So they can sit there and pat themselves on the back for making such a great decision about getting, getting richer I believe it's it's shooting themselves in the foot in the long term, and it's stripped away the infrastructure, meaning the the, the money to literally pay for a lot of jobs of, of of watch industry employees in America. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I would add even a little bit to it that compared to the turnover of dealers and the number of dealers and distributors who get stripped of their 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 access by the brands, compared to that, the amount of turnover is a hundredfold. One of the things that sort of disillusioned me uh, with regard to Swiss brands is the sheer amount of turnover of their American staff, people they hire, fire, shuffle, and dispose of with no continuity, institutional memory, or even the slightest communication that they appreciate the human value of these people, the work they've done, the energy they've expended, and the dedication they've shown to these brands. They treat them like refuse. They dispose of them like trash. And seeing that treatment of their American-based staff left me with a very sour taste in my mouth and the impression that a lot of these bigger brands in particular and group brands were completely soulless. So that's one problem, that that turnover and lack of regard for their American staff. The other thing is that, frankly, the Swiss just, gen- unless you're talking, there are some people like Edward, Edward Melon, like he went to Wharton, he lived in the United States, he's experienced the culture, he understands how to bridge the gap between the Swiss and the Americans. There are very few Edward Melons in that regard. The Swiss don't know how to reach Americans from a marketing standpoint, and, and it can be very dramatic and awkward at times. Like a few years ago, when I was honored to be asked, I was asked by a Swiss brand to narrate their only watch presentation. So each, you know, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you have only watch an auction out of Monaco that helps to provide funds for the research to cure this disease. And it's a big deal. And each watch has an unveiling video at the event. And so one brand asked me to be the voice of the video. I was incredibly honored and just blown away until I read the script. And the first thing I did was basically crumple it up and throw it in the trash can. I'm like, if this is going to be English language, this needs to be reworded. Like, this this is a train wreck. This is like someone's pretentious, semi-literate, poorly transliterated impression of what an American wants to hear about a watch. And I can't go over all the million and one reasons that it was wrong, it was repetitive, it was mundane, it spoke in weird abstracts that didn't really refer to anything. There was no like antecedent to any of these pronouns. Uh, it was a million things that were wrong. And it was like a microcosm of how the Swiss market watches in the U.S. So I rewrote the whole thing, and they were good-natured about it, and they accepted my voiceover, and we went forward with it. But it was a look inside the machine, and the machine's in bad shape. I, I'm really glad that you, again, offer you know more anecdotal evidence, things that I've talked about. Um, you know, there was an article I wrote several years ago that talked about how the Swiss watch industry was sort of systematically, you know, disassembling a lot of its offices and employee structures here in America. And that got me an enormous amount of supportive uh, feedback from people who worked here in the U.S. and didn't make me a lot of friends in Switzerland. I'm I'm always risking uh, a lot of things professionally when I go ahead and 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 make this uh, these statements and things like that because ultimately the money is is controlled by the Swiss. Uh, actual Americans have very little control right now, but I'm advocating for my market because the odd thing is America is still the biggest market on the planet for watches. It is. It is. <laughs> and. We're treated the same way as like, a, you know, a, a backwoods office and, you know, some, you know, European country that has the same number of staff as the American office for, you know, over 300 million people. It's um, it's pretty nuts. It's pretty nuts. And, and as we've said, it's not sustainable because there's too much friction. Nothing about what we've talked about um, is smooth or sustainable in any way. So it's going to break and reform somehow. I don't know how. But we've outlined, I think, a very good context for an industry ripe for enormous disruption, especially in our market. And I would say very few Swiss brands do it right. But the ones that do have long-term commitment and presence in the market, and I think a great example of that is like Henri Stern with Patek Philippe. And every generation of the Stern family has basically cut his teeth in business in the United States. They've had a major subsidiary operating here in the United States for most of a century. And when they held the grand exhibition in New York in 2017, I, I got the impression from everyone, the Americans, the Swiss who came over for the exhibition, that they got the market and they were really deeply committed to it long term. That made a big impression because it was so different from what I've come to expect. And I'll also say this. 
I write the investor reports for my company, and part of what I do is I summarize the market for new and pre-owned Swiss watches, and I can tell you, you're not just spinning wheels. The U.S. market for the third quarter of this year, for two of those months of the quarter, was the world's largest market for Swiss watch exports. We were bigger than China, bigger than Hong Kong, bigger than Singapore, and that for two months of the third quarter, that is a durable trend. We have probably permanently displaced Hong Kong. And oh, yeah. in the future, it's just going to be between mainland China and the U.S. quarter after quarter, month after month, consuming Swiss exports. And if that isn't reason enough to have a meaningful long-term commitment in the market, I don't know what is. And I think that that will remain heavily in the U.S.'s favor once travel from China opens back up again, because... Um, a lot of the Chinese still disproportionately prefer to make those purchases outside of China. Yeah, that's a fact. I do think travel would make a, di a difference. Now, they've tried to crack down a little bit on watch tourism, but it's always going to be a fact. Look, it's and just about travel. People like to shop more when they travel. That's a fact. And you look, the U.S. is a consumer paradise. Everything from dog food up to luxury watches, you'll find almost in every case, the lowest prices in the world in the United States. And frankly, good selection. If you are on the West Coast or the East Coast, there are some places in the United States where you can still see incredible stuff, like selection that's you know second only to like you know Hong Kong, Singapore, and Geneva. So we do have a lot of watches to buy at a lot of dealers. I, I do feel like the two great casualties of the next era are going to be independent dealers and independents to try to sort of unify all the topics we've discussed. But I, I do hope that people coming here to shop at least wards off one of those trends in the short term. Tim, we're out of time, but it sounds like we have some jumping off points for a bunch more discussions. Will you come back and speak to me more soon? Oh, with pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Everyone, this has been my interview with Tim Masso of Watchbox. You can find him just about anywhere on the internet. YouTube channel is probably a great place to start. Tim, thank you and talk to you next time. See you then. Talk then. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.